Hello and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and today we will take a look at why and how the mainstream media has been covering the global supply chain crisis. The topic is getting a tremendous amount of attention right now. The President of the United States spoke out and intervened in the current transportation and supply chain situation. And the headlines in major news outlets and the evening news around the world are full of supply chain stories and attempts to explain what's going on. So I invited two journalists onto the show today who have been covering the world of global transportation, logistics and supply chain for many years. I wanted to get their take on what the mainstream media is getting right, what they may be getting wrong and what the impacts may be on the situation as a result of how this story is covered. Eric Johnson is senior editor at the trade publication Journal of Commerce and Emma Cosgrove is senior reporter for transportation and e-commerce topics at the online publication Business Insider. This conversation is a treat. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And since we're on the topic of supply chain disruptions and backlogs right before the holiday season, I would like to thank Gray Orange for being a sponsor of the Logistics Tribe. Gray Orange should be on your radar when it comes to e-fulfillment. They optimize and accelerate the processing of goods in warehouses and contribute in a major way to customers getting their orders faster. And they do this by combining AI-driven software and robotics. So no wonder why demand for Gray Orange solutions is going through the roof right now. If you want to get e-commerce orders to your customers faster, please take a look at the show notes for links to more information. And now, without further ado, here come Eric Johnson and Emma Cosgrove. Enjoy. Hey, Emma, welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Um, why don't you give a really brief background of yourself, how you got into uh, covering supply chain and logistics issues? Sure. Hi, Eric. Um, okay, so I'm Emma Cosgrove. I'm a senior reporter at Business Insider, well, Insider Inc., covering logistics. Um, my coverage right now largely focuses on the last mile, maybe like 80% last mile, um, which is just a like fascinating space. And honestly, last mile in the US because it's complicating so quickly that there is literally enough to dedicate my entire most of my time to it. But um, given the current circumstances, I have been doing um, a lot more sort of broader supply chain coverage, which is um, before this, I was a reporter for Supply Chain Dive, which is a uh, online trade publication covering freight and logistics operations, procurement, sort of the whole spectrum. And before that, I covered agriculture. And before that, I covered really fancy food and restaurants in New York City. And that's sort of where it started for me because I kept asking famous chefs and sort of like boutique food brands about their sourcing. And I found that a lot more interesting than, I don't know, branding and marketing and the sort of glitz of it all. And so I slowly made my way upstream <laughs> and um, and here I am covering logistics all the time. It sounds like you're you're breaking things down layer by layer until you like become a physicist and get to the like the atomic level of this. Uh, but well, <laughs> I will. Uh, let's focus a little bit on obviously the world today is seemingly infatuated with the, the area of the world that only we and a few others in the in the uh, media business seem to be infatuated with. Um, and, and just, you know, in general, like supply chain and logistics issues coming up on earnings calls, it's, it's, it's weird to, to not see them come up on earnings calls now. It's weird to not see our industry kind of, you know, kind of in the general discourse, right? So 
what do you what do you think is sort of first to start off what do you think is sort of driving the interest over and above that you know there there are some sort of shortages of of certain products here and there there's obviously uh, a lot of reporting about the congestion at ports globally why do you think it's been so heightened this time well you and i know that anyone who's been reporting on port congestion and all kinds of the issues that are making mainstream news right now for nine months. I mean, I was reporting on this in February and it wasn't getting read. (laughs) And, uh, and I think that's because people don't have normal folks, even like most reporters are consumers when it comes to supply chain, like that's their role in supply chains. And so when consumers start to feel it, um, or, or notice it, then they want to report on it. I think it's, it's not much more complicated than that. And we've seen it. I mean, I've only been covering supply chains for five or six years and um, we've seen it three times in the last three years. So like, this is the third time I've sort of experienced this sort of medium maelstrom about supply chain obsession, but last year sort of PPE issues, I think there was a similar, um, crescendo. Um, and, and there were a lot of like sort of ex- a lot of explanatory journalism out there, which I think is mostly a good thing. And then before that, it was trade war. I mean, it was tariffs. And a lot of those conversations sort of go in the same direction, which is like, um, <laughs> we're having issues with our supply chains. We can't get exactly what we want at the moment we want it. Should we consider U.S. manufacturing? Well, here's how hard that is and why that's going to be virtually impossible for most products, why it's going to take hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of investment. And they're like, okay, so should we reconsider just-in-time manufacturing so that we have more inventory in the country in the first place? And it's like, well, we probably should, but also we have this thing called the quarterly earnings call where investors really like to see healthy profit margins and low inventories, and that's still what they ask for. So maybe nothing's going to change that much. This feels like a moment like that. The only difference here is that this is clearly, I mean, if if we assume that sort of consumers and the mainstream media are catching on now and not six months ago when it sort of started or not even started, it started before that. But if they're catching on now, it's going to last through the end of the year, through Chinese New Year, probably till the spring, depending on a million various factors. So it's going to be in their um, sort of consciousness longer this time. And so that'll be super interesting to see if the reporting, the mainstream reporting sort of keeps up because the story, as you and I know very well, doesn't change that much. It's like, it's still happening. That's the story. Um, So yeah, I'm fascinated to see it, but it's Groundhog Day for me and probably for you as well. Yeah, I, so I wanted to hit on a couple things, or, or sort of touch on a couple things. One is, uh, you know, and admittedly, I can I can be the uh, get off my lawn guy um, in in the industry. Like, and I, you know, there's certain things that sort of rub me the wrong way about the way the the mainstream media has covered this, and I think that's why Boris wanted to have me on to sort of like cut through a little bit of what yeah. maybe you know, not connecting the dots enough or, or, you know, looking at the bigger picture kind of thing. Um, the, and it's true. I am, I can be very curmudgeonly in my old age at this point, but, um, I, you know, I do think the one thing I'm a little curious about is there seems to be the same sort of story that's been written 
to your point about Groundhog Day, like 50, 100 times by now by various outlets, right? And mm-hmm. it's a lot of times it, it appears to be covering the same ground that it, that stories that were written about this three months ago we're covering like can you take a step back and say is there still value to covering the same thing as it was covered three months ago because chances are only 10 percent of people even caught the first piece in the first place and i'm just super attuned to what's being written about the industry right now or is it just that everybody in you know every outlet feels they need to have covered their bases in terms of like oh we've done the we've done the port is the ports are crowded story, you know, it, is it, am I simplifying things too much? Do you think? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the, we have to get kind of meta here and talk about media and, and journalism and, and sort of digital media, because, you know, this, one of the hardest lessons to learn for me as a journalist in the digital age, which like, I'm in my thirties. I've always been writing online. I've written for one magazine in my life and that was 10 years ago. Um, It's that you're right. Like a very small percentage of the possible audience hits that story. Mm -hmm. And that story can't recirculate in the search engines (laughs) once it's weeks and weeks old. It's just not going to recirculate. So you might as well do it again. Um, and you do it differently and you report it out. I think it's funny to see a lot of like the people that you and I talk to all the time show up in like the New York Times. Yeah, it's like it's like one of my family members has been quoted or something. It's really strange. Exactly. It's like, I know that guy. I've seen him. I've talked to him like for 12 years. It's good. He's getting the yeah. shout out. Yeah. But the nature of media as it exists today, especially online, is that when you show up to the New York Times homepage or the Wall Street Journal homepage, you want to see that thing you saw on the news, on the TV news. Like it all has to, it all sort of works together. And I feel like working at the publication I work at, which is extremely audience aware and like to the second, like engineering what we need to be covering, not just what the news is, but also what does our audience want to know right this second and getting stories out as soon as possible. Um, I think that's a lot of what's happening right now. And that means that the one of the most important elements in news and the hardest one to harness is timing. And like, you know, I wrote a big story about port congestion in February. It did fine, but it didn't do great. It might have done really well today. But for me personally, it feels very silly to write it again, <laughs> you know, to re-report it because it's, it's also not news to me. So it, in some ways, I sort of like, I, we've got some great reporters at Insider who are um, writing like through five, six, seven stories a week on different port situations. And uh, there's a great story just today or yesterday about air freight charters, which I hadn't seen anywhere else. Like they're doing great reporting. And part of the reason that they're doing it well, I think, is because it's new to them. And so they, you know, they're better at this <laughs> in this moment. I'm not good at it in this moment. I'm good at the analysis, but like the, this is happening. It doesn't feel, I can't put an exclamation point Did you point know on. that courts don't run 24 hours a day? How is this not happening today? That's, you know, I, I know that's been kind of the hook and, and we'll get into that, the reason for that in a sec, because obviously oh the whole Biden, yeah. uh, you know, um, announcement this past week. But um, you're, you're, you raise an interesting point in that it's important even for people in our position where we're writing to like maybe a more informed audience about the subjects, you still have to put yourself in their shoes and assume that they don't 
they don't know all of the things that you might know and they might not be as cynical about the things that you have written about a million times because the flip yeah. side of that is we've all we've all come across stories where someone has where we read something and someone has addressed this this industry as if there are six parts and we know that there are 7000 parts and we don't even know the other 50000 parts that we don't know yet because we haven't our career hasn't touch those things yet. And, and, and the flip, you know, and then, but then empathizing with the person whose job it is to jump on this massive interconnected story, we've all been there too, right? We've all been told, Hey, write something super informative and authoritative on a topic, you know, nothing about go right. Like, so I'm very empathetic to the, I'm sort of, I've sort of reached this point where I'm empathetic toward the writer and not as much toward the outlet, if that makes sense. Um, because the outlet should be putting the writer in a position, maybe a better position to, to like tackle what is a really complicated subject. So. I think that's true. I think, um, I feel really lucky in this moment because I am writing a few pieces about this and my editors are not supply chain folks, um, right now. And that is, um, great because they're very well-informed laymen on this issue um, and and logistics in general. And that has been hugely helpful for me because, you know, I came from the trades, which I think is, I think a lot of, um, you know, I'm always looking at like which reporters are covering it and who they put on it. Cause they don't allow, like the New York Times doesn't have someone covering the stuff all the time. Um, and it seems like a lot of uh, economics reporters and, and sort of more general, like internationally minded business reporters and stuff, which is a good thing. I think, I think economics reporters are used to the sort of level of complexity and um, general chaos. Cause I think a lot of the interviews I've heard um, where the interviewer is like, what do you mean? Like we don't have a, the containers aren't in the right place. Like, don't they go back to where they're supposed to go? every time like what do you mean <laughs> this is sort of a, a chaos driven system um so i don't know where i was going with that but anyway i think having folks on on it who don't usually cover it is really helpful because those articles aren't for for you and me and they're not for your the joc audience either you know um right. therefore the joc audience is like partners and you know adult or, children. Or maybe their bosses or maybe they're awesome. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But the other yeah. thing that's been really amazing, Eric, and I want to hear what you have to say about this, because I've been noticing even supply chain folks disagreeing a lot mm-hmm. online. You know, like now that we're sort of getting deeper in the weeds, because like you said, like the early stories about this was like, there are two issues. And then now I think it's like people are mostly like there are six or seven issues. And we know that it's there are there are millions of issues. <laughs> There's so many issues. And that is uh, well. I don't know, that's a certain amount of complexity has to be distilled down. But a lot of people disagree. I'm seeing a lot of like spatting among the folks yeah. in our space. Well, because it's so, really hard to tell the story correctly and, and encompass it, everyone. It's really difficult. And thus it makes it hard to legislate or sort of figure out, a, a you know, for one body to, to create some sort of solution. Um, t- so two things I think are interesting that you brought up. One is that there is an every, this is sort of an alpha dog kind of industry in that people are very sure of themselves in general, even when they're very sort of self-effacing or they're really sweet to deal with. 
you you have to be confident. You're dealing with literally the lifeblood of a company's of a company that makes things or or buys things, right? Like if you don't if you mess up, you're you are in trouble and your company's in trouble, right? So there's a certain amount of confidence that comes with that role, right? And so you you generally, especially after a few years, think you're right. Um, so I think that's surfacing a little bit. I one thing that's been really interesting in my career is that th- there is less sort of understanding of other stakeholders in this, like in the global logistics world than we might ordinarily assume. Like if you're a, sh- if you're a shipper and all you've ever done is be a shipper, you, you understand what a forwarder does and you understand what a carrier does and you understand what all the companies you interface with do, but you may not be putting yourselves in their shoes in the same way as if you've held multiple roles across your career and you really understand what it took to do those jobs. And so I, a lot of times, I, I'm sure you see this too. A lot of times I, I get conversations with a certain entity revolve around, Hey, what is everyone else thinking about this? You know, I want to understand a little bit better about, cause I can't, for whatever reason, it, maybe it's a, a little bit of a tricky commercial relationship. I don't, they don't want to necessarily talk directly to me about this, but I would love to know how they think about it, you know? So there's that, which I think contributes to what you're saying, which is everyone sort of has a different sort of view. There's, they have a pain point and that pain point is, is their idea of what is causing their supply chain to be troubled. The other thing is the last year and a half, and maybe it's because of the crazy growth of e-com, and the sellers that are attached to e-com, there's just way more people on social media, especially on the shipper side of things than ever before. Like I was on Twitter. I've been on Twitter since I think 2011, 2012, before the pandemic, there were there were not many shippers on Twitter. Like it was, I could probably less than one hand, I could name the shippers on Twitter. They were very reticent to talk. And, and this new crop of people who are managing supply chains, who are very online, you know, they're, they're out there, they're having public discussions. It's great. It's really cool actually to see sort of this, but, but a lot of them are driven. I won't say all, but a lot of them are driven from this sort of e-com explosion that we've seen. And they're just, they, they're, they don't, they aren't living according to rules that were set for their role 20 years ago, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. They're also very, very small. It's really important in the grand scheme. Yeah. Even if, I mean, a lot of them post, I know these folks to you and not all of them, obviously, but uh, I, I see them sort of post, they're very transparent about sort of sales volume and containers sure. and all that stuff. And and in the grand scheme of things, they're extremely small, which um, you have to take into account if you're going to rate, you know, put their experience in context. And that's sort of a difficult thing about social media as well is that if I see like a forwarder or anybody who claims to do logistics talking about the situation on the ground, it's very difficult without interrogating that person to figure out what exactly their lens on it is, what lanes they have access to just like mentally. Um, And so that's something that, you know, I think really good supply chain reporting requires that that's where the experience comes in because you can sort of, interrogate an interview subject before you even talk to them and sort of figure out they have a a view of a slice of the world and what does their slice look like so that I can put their experience in context for more general reporting. And honestly, I haven't seen that many shippers quoted in media so far. I've seen a lot of um, forwarders and carriers and stuff. Um, 
so this isn't that much of an issue, but if you can't, that context is essential and reporting without that context can easily lead to sort of sensationalist quotes and, and headlines that seem really dramatic, but like, like I talked to a guy who recently left General Mills and supply chain management recently. And he was, I was like, you know, what do you think is going on? And he was like, well, you got your eye on your own paper when you're a shipper that's at large, right? If your paper looks okay, and it probably does, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, at that, at that scale, it's probably, they're probably getting it. They're probably figuring it out. Then, then you're fine. And the, this whole media thing is not affecting you if you know where your stuff is. <laughs> um, so yeah, N equals one is kind of part of the problem. So two, there's a couple things that I've come across that are really interesting. And one, one is back to something you originally said about sort of reshoring or, or, you know, basing manufacturing by yeah. curious. There was a, someone posted a quote, uh, a stat from AmCham China recently that said something like 72% of their members have not even considered moving sourcing away from China. So like recently. So that means despite everything that's gone on, we are not seeing some massive upheaval of like, you know, reshoring, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I need to see yeah. the question there as well. Because of course, yeah, um, of course. This is a this is yeah. a Twitter stat, so take that for what it's worth. But um, well, last year, um, PwC and Amcham did. I think they did the same survey this year. It might have come out last week, which is why you said that yeah. I need to do my reading. But um, there were PwC did a lot of great surveys last year, pandemic wise, about sourcing shifts, and it, it was always like diversification, but not, no one wants to get out of China. It's like, do we have a, do we have a second option? And then it sort of quickly became because the pandemic shifted around so much and is still sort of shifting around. Are we, do we just have our bases covered? You know, do we have enough diversification that we feel comfortable in having plan B, plan C, you know, all that stuff. But those are those costs you talked about, right? Like when the, when the earnings yeah. come and you've got you've got four suppliers to manage and it's they're not all optimal instead of two, does that make shareholders happy, right? When when things are a little bit more normal. Yeah, I mean that's where you that's where I, I used to call the pandemic an extinction level event for retailers. And I still think it might be for some because if you don't if your costs can't our cost structure can't tolerate that level of supply chain management, of active supply chain management, it means you were built on shifting sands to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of retailers who had very sort of um, convoluted supply chains, who didn't do a ton of direct purchasing, who weren't necessarily dealing with anyone on the ground in the country where they were, sort of, they were ultimately sourcing from. There was a lot of sort of middlemen in there. Yeah. If you were working in a supply chain like that, you're not, you were probably got away from that in the last year, I would hope. And if you didn't, then you're going to be in trouble. Um, and that's like not even about sourcing changes in terms of country of origin. It's just about your organizational structure and God, that horrible word agility. But like, do you even have <laughs> do you even have the like the wherewithal to make changes if you need to? Um, you know, that's step one. And that's not sexy at all. But <laughs> um, it's true. It's it's necessary. Um, but yeah, I get like the sourcing changes are always fascinating. And I don't know what lesson, honestly don't know what lesson people are going to learn from the last 18 months in terms of sourcing. I don't think getting away from China is one of them. Um, I think diversification in general is probably one of them, but we've seen also a lot of like, 
it's in the mainstream media stuff with semiconductors and there are a couple other raw materials that are like literally only available from a few companies, a few places. And that's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, that's not a quick fix. That's a, that's a long-term, very expensive um, fix that we should probably look at as a, and I mean, not we, but (laughs) folks should probably look at, um, as a fundamental threat to a lot, a lot of businesses, but not all supply chains that a compromise at the bottom. That's well, a- yeah, I, I, I wrote about this last week. It's like one of the things that's getting conflated is supply chain issues and and transportation issues, right? Like what's happening at the port right now is a transportation issue. It's a, it, Someone put it actually way better than I – I did like a seven-tweet thread about it. And someone else put it, did it, said it in one tweet. We have an issue of abundance. It's not an issue of scarcity right now, right? We have too much stuff trying to fit through too small a pipe, not an absence mm-hmm. of stuff. The semiconductor stuff is the opposite of that. That is, we don't have as critical this critical component that every other product downstream is is based around. That's not the I I call this the 125 breakfast cereals instead of only 150 breakfast cereal issue, right? Like we do not have a problem with products in general, but to your point, every individual company is going to experience a different version of what is going on. And some will experience relatively little uh, disruption and others will rep- will experience potentially existential disruption and uh, but as you look across an entire industry and as you look across a consumer uh sort of uh environment i think the the reporting a little bit and and not even the reporting because the reporting is based on what is being said in many cases on from the the leaders at the top and that now goes all the way up to the president um it's it's misaligned a little bit with what like our experiences. Yes, there is massive disruption right now. Christmas is probably not going to be canceled, right? I think there's we're all going to have stuff under the tree. Uh, mm-hmm. It may not be our first choice. It may be our second out of, you know, 50 million choices. Um, but, you know, that, that sort of messaging, I think, is not entirely helpful. And, and actually, there's been some interesting reporting in the last week that like even just – you know, kind of continuing with that narrative is actually worsening the problem, right? Because it's creating like retailers and their suppliers have forecasts that they base their their entire product and transportation cycles around. If you all of a sudden say there's a run on something in some random week in, in October, that throws all of those forecasts and all that planning out the window because they never, who would have known that someone was going to say that there was going to be a run on this product and that has a rebound effect on everything. So I, I, I sort of wish everyone would take a little bit of a deep breath on this and realize there's a lot of people who dedicate their whole life to trying to figuring this stuff out and they're tired and they're exasperated, but they're not like hopeless and they have not run out of ideas of how to do their job. Yeah. I think, I think one of the most important lessons, it'll be interesting to see if we're, if people are still interested in this in a month. Um, or or two months, because I think if Black Friday sort of goes off without massive, you know, photos of empty shelves everywhere, then um, we'll probably forget all about it <laughs> as a country. But um, I think the number one, and this has been said, I think you just said it, like small businesses 
are going to be the ones who, for whom this is a really big problem. Um, and, and by small, small is pretty big. It's also like, you know, re national retailers. Some of them are in terms of shipper size, they're pretty small, um, the sort of mid-sized retailer. But apart from that, the other side of that coin is that all of this media coverage and the sort of supply chain issues as well are going to do, if they're going to do anything, they're going to benefit Amazon. And like, if you are concerned about having something in your hands when you want it in your hands, you you get on your phone and you order it from Amazon because it comes two days later. Um, and also, they are one of the most powerful shippers out there right now. Um, they have a lot of sway and they get their stuff, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think that's going to be, I hope that story survives. I hope that one comes through because that those are those market dynamics that that this whole situation is going to change um are they're going to be massive and and they're they're indicative of so many larger trends but um the the big guys being good at managing this possibly at the expense of the little guys is mm -hmm. that's a it's a nuanced story i think it's a difficult one to tell but it's it's important so i hope it gets told I wonder, I wonder the same thing. And I think I, I, I've always sort of taken the approach that um, people's fascination with this stuff will eventually fade away. Um, but I don't know if it will fade away in the way that it normally does, which is to say that like no one cares about it at all until, you know, something happens. Um, I think there will be a baseline understanding of what, you know, sort of supply chain and, and logistics is that didn't exist pre all of this um, in the way that like we kind of know how last mile works now because you know, it's, we're, we interact with it on a daily basis. Um, do we, do we, Eric, this morning on the New York, I'm sorry, I was listening to the New York times podcast today and the interviewer asked why are, <laughs> if we have so much, if so much stuff is in warehouses, if warehouses are bursting, why don't I get my packages on time? And I just wanted to raise my hand and be like, ma'am those are two very different issues <laughs> i know the story i know the answer ma'am yeah <laughs> well it's like bless your heart but those are two very different issues so you that i think is what you just hit on is there i think there's going to be a more awareness that there are things going on that empower our ability to shop whether online or in a store or you know just kind of keep the engines of industrial of our industrial world working. The tricky part is going to be how those connections, you know, get made and, and whether there's enough interest for it to be beyond you and I, and, you know, the handful of other reporters who, well, it's more than a handful, but, you know, a few dozen other reporters who, who, you know, report on this every day, making those connections. Is that going to, is the, is the broader, market the broader world going to have enough interest to to make those connections when things are kind of working pretty well that's i i think that probably fades away but i think at least at the very least there is like a a, a 101 level if not a you know 201 level of what's gone on that will last and when something comes up again people will we won't have to explain everything you know down to the studs like maybe we mm. did before um so that's I good mean, I think already there Honestly, yep. because 101 was Suez in my book. <laughs> that was great. It wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. It was not great, but it was a very interesting teaching moment. It was a lesson. Yes, it was a lesson. Yeah. yeah. 
That's true. That's true. I actually presented to my kids, my second grade kids class about it. Realized how little I knew about the canal before that. So um, I mean, same. But yeah. also I had reporters on my team and I, I love Insider because if you're curious and if the audience is into it, you can go in any direction you want basically. And there were, there was at least one, if not two reporters who just got really into Ship big boat. They got super into it. And they like yeah. talked to the guy with the digger trying to get like yeah. in that photo, they yeah. talked to that guy, you know, they've talked to, they've done some reporting about folks who work on cargo ships and they've just done some cool reporting that, you know, us industry folks are not doing the sort of personal stories. So I think that's a hugely beneficial thing that's come out of all of this too. Yeah. And I hope that continues. Yep. Very cool. Emma, so there was some big news this week, or last week, I should say, uh, uh, where the uh, president actually sort of got out in front of this issue in a way that few presidents ever have in our space. There's been obviously a lot of sort of critique, I would say, of of the plan um, of sort of lacking the, the you know, kind of uh, connecting the bigger picture to what's going on at just the ports. What was your first reaction to it? And what's been as you've talked to people uh, in your reporting, what's been, what's your takeaway from whether there will actually be some lasting impact from this? Whew, I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer the second part of that one, but the first part, <laughs> um, which was, what was uh, my takeaway? My takeaway was this is a, this is a politician's approach, um, which is simplify the problem and attack the one part of it that you've simplified it to. Um, LA Long Beach is, a pro is an issue. <laughs> Obviously, it plays an enormous part in all of the dynamics we've been talking about this whole time. But 24-7 operations at LA Long Beach is not going to fix all of our problems. Um, I don't know to what extent it is going to fix any of our problems. Um, we're going to find out. I, I think it's not helpful that the follow-on reporting in reaction to that has now become operations at LA Long Beach are in Biden territory and therefore conservative media is already scrutinizing how fast or slow those uh, measures are being taken, which cannot be helpful. But I don't I don't know if that actually is going to have any impact on the ground whatsoever. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, it doesn't seem like it can hurt. But is it gonna massively change things? Doesn't seem like it is the sense I get. Yeah, I, I just real briefly, I would say two things. People should maybe Google from about 20, 2006 the word peer pass, um, which was an attempt literally 15 years ago to try to induce not just the ports, but the ecosystem that depends on the ports uh, to go to move to 24-7 operations. And obviously that means you can't just have the terminals open the gates open 24 hours a day you need to have where downstream facilities that receive containers you need to have all the transportation providers that shuttle those containers back and forth all coordinated right on that third nighttime shift right that's been written um but i i would say that this is not this is not something that just dawned on the industry yesterday um and and the second part is you know we've talked a bit about big shippers versus small shippers this is this is an area where big shippers are are just better prepared or better equipped to uh, align their own operations with a twenty four hour twenty four seven operation than a lot of smaller and mid sized shippers who are depending on you know 
third-party contract logistics providers in there, depending on all of their providers who over which they don't have the same leverage, right? So, mm-hmm. um, never mind, you know, uh, an, a network that they own or control, right? So, it's a you're, I think I think you put it well. I think it's a it's this is a, a political, very public move to be seen to be addressing an issue, but there's so many moving parts. It's just really hard to say pinpoint one area and say. Now we fixed it or we're on the way to fixing it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think President Biden was doing was trying to sort of quell the panic and be like, listen, guys, like we can handle this as a country. And I, I think that's a fair sentiment. But the, the way we're going to handle it is that the professionals that we've been talking about this whole time who are very tired and overworked and have been doing this for 18 months are going to keep doing what they do until we can get the backlog through And they're going (laughs) to, I mean, that's the only way to do it. I kind of wish there was a way to, that's so many different positions, like job titles and so many different companies, but um, they could use a little, I mean, port workers, absolutely. Drayage drivers, absolutely. Let's like celebrate all of these people. We need to be talking about them on the national stage, but there are a lot of people who are doing this work and their work is not like niche you know, it's not like um, quaint. It's just incredibly important, always cooking right underneath the surface of this economy. Yeah. Um, so he could talk about them a bit. That'd be great. We'll leave, it, yeah, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Good. But excellent points. Um, Emma, tell people how to get in touch with you and where to see your stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, I write for businessinsider.com on the transportation page. You can check that out. I'm at Emma Cause, E-M-M-A-C-O-S on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find my email all over the internet. I'm very accessible. Please come and talk to me. Cool. Uh, thank you so much. This has been awesome to talk to you about this. Uh, I know we talk, we've talk. we talked about this a bunch offline, so it's good to have a, a yeah. conversation that everyone can listen in on. So um, best of luck with this crazy world that we're in. And to you. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. Bye. Bye. All right, that was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode with Eric Johnson and Emma Cosgrove. If you work in logistics and supply chain and related fields, you should follow what Eric and Emma are writing on these topics. I'll leave links in the show notes so you can follow them. Thanks for listening to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreher. Until next time.